And in any other business, if you had two cheese companies, they would say they're competitors. But in this business, I've had clients tell me not only do they not mind that I work with their competitors, they want me to because they want them to succeed because it grows the category and saves more lives. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saber. Hi, and welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. My name is Jerry Saver, and this is the podcast where I interview the people who have made plant-based products and values the cornerstone of their business. My guest today has done just that. He's built his business around vegan products, but he's not making anything that you could buy in a store. His name is David Benzikin, and his company, Plant-Based Solutions, is a marketing and brand management firm for the companies that produce vegan products. And I'm really glad to be talking to him today because it gives me a chance to show you what goes on behind the scenes and that space between a company making your favorite product and you actually being able to go out and buy that product. And what goes on in that space is often what makes a brand fail or succeed. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for joining me today because like I told you before, I think with what you're doing... It really ties very good into the concept of this podcast, both in terms of opportunities in the plant-based sector and in terms of giving listeners who have a business or want to start their own business an even better understanding of what's needed. But sure. um, before we get into that stuff, first, you know, tell me about yourself. Where did you grow up and when did you decide that you didn't want to eat food that comes from animals? Sure. So... I grew up in New York City in the United States, and I went vegetarian when I was 14. Uh, I was very passionate about various social justice issues, and when I realized how animals were treated for food, I just didn't feel I could support that. Uh, so at 14, I went vegetarian, and then within a few years, I was learning more about what was happening to cows and chickens to produce eggs and milk, and I was learning about a lot of different social issues. I went to college at 18, and the day I went to college, I went to the student organizations fair where all the different clubs would talk to you about what they would do. And I went to each one of the social justice clubs, so the one for workers' rights and for women's rights, against the death penalty, against the war, all these different groups, and I happened upon the Animal Rights Club. And I asked the woman who was running it, if I joined her club, what would we do as members? And she said, we will help you go vegan. You will save a hundred animal lives by yourself this year alone. And then every single person that we help you educate about this issue will save thousands and thousands and thousands more. And unlike at all the other clubs, which were doing wonderful work, but were telling me that I'd be protesting or in meetings or signing petitions, the fact that I, as an 18-year-old person, could change the world with just my own fork and my own wallet meant so much to me. It felt so empowering. And so that day I went vegan, and I've been dedicated to the cause ever since. I spent a little over 10 years after that working full-time in the nonprofit world. Um, while finishing up school, I was working at various animal protection organizations in both fundraising and in advocacy. And then in 2012, I launched my company, Plant-Based Solutions. Yeah, so that's a, actually a pretty early age to, to be going vegetarian and vegan because, well, 
least for me at 18 years old, I was thinking of anything else but that, definitely. Um, is that something that runs in the family or how did you get to, to that point of being so passionate about social justice and every kind of justice? Yeah, uh, social justice does run in the family, actually. Um, my stepfather was a college friend of Ralph Nader, a uh, big-time consumer advocate here in the United States, and I was exposed to progressive ideals from a very early age. But uh, specifically, the issues around animal protection and plant-based eating and living were th something I came across on my own years later. Yeah, and... Apart from working for all these um, for nonprofits for the work that you did, how how else did those choices affect your professional life? Like, uh, what what did you study actually? So in college, I studied political science with a focus on women's leadership in politics and international peace studies uh, and conflict resolution, and then I did my masters in nonprofit management because at the time I planned on working full time in the nonprofit world to help advance these causes. Really I think what happened was that I was so passionate about this issue and when I graduated school I didn't realize that one could impact these issues in any way except to work in the nonprofit world. So I did what everybody else did and I went immediately to go find an organization whose values aligned with mine and to help them. And it was wonderful work with amazing people. But I realized I wasn't having the impact that I wanted to and that everybody who wanted to address these problems was trying to do it in the same way. And so I started thinking about what actually makes people change their diets or change their behavior around such personal issues. And I came to realize that if we don't make plant-based food and products accessible, affordable, desirable, delicious, and all these things, people won't make the decision, except for a very small minority who will do it purely on mission. So I dedicated my life to helping to make those products more accessible, affordable, and desirable. Yeah, that that was actually going to be my next question, which was, uh, at what point did you come up with the idea for plant-based solutions, which is, I think, what you just answered. So that was kind of in the early 2000s that that you started working with nonprofits and then slowly developed that idea, right? Is yes, that, I was uh, very inspired by the growth of the effective altruism movement, which really looks at how we can be most effective in accomplishing our career goals to make global impact. Um, that and I heard a very important business leader in the United States, a man named Jeff Dunn, who runs a company called Bolt House Farms. I heard him speak about how we could use the same marketing tactics that were being used to sell things like Coca-Cola and McDonald's and use them to promote healthy, delicious, sustainable alternatives. And was that the, the main idea behind plant-based solutions? Like when, when you started the company, did you know exactly how you wanted it to function or did it gradually evolve once you actually started working on it? It's a great question. You know, I knew exactly what I wanted to accomplish. Um, how that would happen exactly was something that I knew I would have to feel out and learn because I had not officially worked in this space before. However, um, I was able to, before I started the business, I did 115 informational interviews. So I met with people in the food industry, in the marketing industry to learn from them. 
And so when I launched my business, I had mapped out very much what I wanted to do. And I started by offering our services to companies based on whatever we could get the opportunity and the you know blessing to do for them. And then little by little, we were able to focus on the parts of the work that we are most passionate about, like the strategic management and strategic planning so that companies can be as effective as possible. So when we started the company and when you were putting it all together, you now have about two dozen people working for you, right? So, so I have a yeah. small team internally, but we work with a lot of folks as contractors very regularly. And is it a predominantly vegan team? Uh, mostly, though not exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody is, everybody is very passionate about one or more issues that support the reasons for plant-based eating, whether it's sustainability or health or animal protection. Everybody cares about all those issues. Um, but we do have people who, who eat different ways. Yeah, obviously. But um, how, how did you start pulling it all together? Like, what was your core team that you put together when, when you were just starting out? And where did you find those people? Yeah, so when I started, it was just a couple of us. And it was people that I met um, around the time that I was forming it who had different skills and experiences that I was looking for. And then the big change was in, in 2014, my colleague Mary McGovern joined us. And she comes from 25 years of the most incredible experience in uh, large corporate food companies. And her experience really brings so much value to our ability to serve companies with the best practices that they would get if they were one of those big companies. And we've been able to make a huge impact as a result of that experience. Yeah, so for, for the team, like you said, you, you have people who mostly share the values. There's a, you know, a lot of interconnection there. And it's obviously you're going to be attracting people who share your values. And it's always better to work with those kind of people. But if we now move to the kind of companies that are your clients, if they're at an early growth stage or if they're just looking for staff who are designers or programmers or food scientists or whatever... Should they also try to have everyone on board with this kind of lifestyle that they're promoting? It's a good question. I think that everybody, in my opinion, it really is really special and valuable to have people who are passionate for something beyond just a paycheck. That doesn't mean that we should expect people not to uh, value their paychecks. And I think that one of the challenges we have as a movement is that so often we feel like because we are doing something so valuable from a mission standpoint that everybody should be expected just to accept that that means that there's not enough money to make a good living. And I think that's a real problem. I think it's a reason that a lot of the nonprofits in our movement have a very high turnover rate. And I think it's a reason that there's, you know, motivation only lasts so long. And that I think there are a lot of people who would love to work in this space full time but either choose not to or are unable to because they can't afford to live that way. And so I do think we need to value people beyond just motivating them with mission, though it is a nice thing to do. And as far as having people who are committed, I do think there's something special about having people who are inspired, passionate, and motivated, and who can speak well to the mission that you are espousing. But what's most important is being effective. And when we look at what we're trying to accomplish, we're not here to cater to vegans. We're here to create a more 
sustainable, healthy, and ethical world. And that means that often who we're trying to influence when we're marketing products is not vegans. We're trying to get vegan products into the hands of people who would not be consuming them because they're the ones who are going to be making decisions that will save animals, that will save people, and that will save the planet. And so we really look at how we're going to be approachable and re respectful and respected so that we can engage in people where the, with people where they're at and move the needle forward in that way, not so that we can push an agenda that is not desirable from others. Yeah, that was actually going to be another one of my questions later on. But since you're already <laughs> touching on it, and just like you said, the majority of the customers are, are not going to be vegans. And the way that I see the industry involving is that the largest percentage of clients will be flexitarians or however you want to call them, you know, people who are trying to cut down on animal products, but just not entirely yet. So Absolutely. when you say, yeah, when it comes to our clients, many of them are, if not vegan, many of them are mission driven. We have clients who have incredible missions and the reasons they do this work is often for mission reasons which is one of the things that makes me so proud to work with them but when it comes to the customers and the consumers that they are selling products to and who we are marketing to very often those will be, be that flexitarian audience that you mentioned yeah so how how do you position and brand the product so you can build a relationship with both this kind of audience the flexitarians and on the other hand, the, the vegan customers, which may be a smaller group, but they, they could be more passionate and ultimately more loyal to, to a certain brand. Sure. So when it comes to positioning, I'll take those one at a time. When it comes to positioning the brand for vegans, the nice thing is that we are extremely um, interconnected and very social as a community. We are very supportive of each other. And so as a community, vegans tend to find out about vegan products pretty quickly. We're also just starting to come out of a generation where good vegan products were hard to find. We're finally getting a good spread, depending on where you are, of incredible vegan products out there. So we're, we're still used to having to, you know, work together just to find what was available. And that means that we're always aware of what the next big thing is. So you don't have to work too hard to let vegans know that there's a new vegan product and as long as you uh, maintain those values maintain the you know fact that your product should always be plant-based and that you'll do your best not only to respect animals but also people on the planet people who care about these values are going to support you when it comes to flexitarians people who are committed to these issues for either health reasons or sustainability or whatever it may be the key is really being approachable and showing them that these products are available to them and that it's not about how they call themselves or, you know, whether they feel they understand or relate to people that are in our community full time or anything else. It's really about having healthy, delicious options and enjoying them. Um, I think some of the most effective work that has been done in the last few years on the advocacy and education side has been movements like Green Mondays and Meatless Mondays, other efforts that say, try this out, it's delicious, you can make a huge impact without sacrificing anything. And then more often than not, people realize how easy and convenient it is, and they want to make that change. 
So we noticed that with one of our clients, Gardein, uh, which is a very large meat alternative company, mm-hmm. Gardein started calling their products an option on, you know, for people. And so many, many people in my family who are not vegetarian and many friends and other people I've met say, oh, that makes it so much less threatening because I can have Gardein on Mondays and then chicken on, on Thursdays. And that's true. If you're going to make a, di- if we're going to make a difference, we need to give people the opportunity to try to embrace these products without feeling threatened. And more often than not, when they realize how delicious and healthy they are and how good they make them feel, they're just going to go bigger from there and get more involved. Yeah, which was going to be my next question here as well, which was <laughs> how, how else do you nurture the flexitarian customers so that they may in time potentially make the switch completely and drop animal-based products because when when you're mission when you're mission driven like you are and like your corporate clients are i guess our ulterior motive here is to make more people vegan right is is to get more people to to eat this kind of food so what what else can you do so that those people who are now on let's say meatless mondays go to meatless Tuesdays and Wednesdays and meatless weeks and months? Sure. Well, I guess I'm going to first uh, speak to what you said the mission was. And I, and I, some people may not like that I say this. And, and it's not to say that I don't want more people to go vegan. I would love for me more people to go vegan. But I think rather than saying that it's about more people embracing that title or that lifestyle, even in a not conscious way, What matters me more is the impact. And so if people call themselves, you know, uh, the wall people, but they happen to eat less animals, save their health and protect the planet, I don't really care if they call themselves vegan or not. And if I had three people eat 90% less animal products rather than one person eat 100% vegan, I would be happier. That doesn't mean that I don't embrace and encourage and love when people say that they're going 100% vegan. I think it's a fantastic thing. I think it's, in my mind, the reason that I got into it, because I think it's ethically consistent with my values. And I think as more people become aware of what happens to our health animals on the planet, more people will recognize that. But what's more important to me is how much damage we're reducing or how many lives we're improving rather than, you know, whether people buy into a certain philosophy. Um, in terms of nurturing people, I think it's about creating a community of resources. The nice thing about the plant-based community, and I, I hope this stays this way, I've certainly seen it thus far, I'm surrounded by companies who in any other context would be considered competitors. You know, vegan cheese companies and vegan meat alternative companies and others who are making incredible products to make plant-based eating more convenient and accessible. And in any other business, if you had two cheese companies, they would say they're competitors. But in this business, I've had clients tell me not only do they not mind that I work with their competitors, they want me to because they want them to succeed because it grows the category and saves more lives. That's a beautiful thing when we recognize there's a greater purpose beyond just, uh, beyond just profit making. And I think that that community that we're building, when we offer customers, um, more insights into how they can help themselves and their families, more information to protect their health and where they can find great things, recipes and opportunities to meet each other and build a community of like-minded people. 
I think that's what's going to make uh, people more open to and more interested in advancing along the spectrum of the plant-based world. Yeah, I, I have to say I just love your answer from, from start to finish, you know, both from what you were talking about, the um, the bottom line, because we are totally on the same page there. I think that what what matters most, at least to me, is how much change you can actually do. And exactly like you said, if you can get three people to cut down on their animal-based product consumption by 90%, you're actually making a lot bigger difference than getting just one person to go 100% vegan, right? So yeah. that's that's one thing. And the other thing is the collaboration that you mentioned and the fact that this industry, yeah, it definitely seems a lot less cutthroat than than parallel similar industries in, in the animal-based product sector. And I, I really hope that it stays that way as, as we grow and as we go along. Absolutely. And I think it's actually spreading and we're we're going to be able to uh, I don't want to say infiltrate, but I think that we are able to insert ourselves in the broader business conversation and change how everybody else is doing business too. You know, stepping outside of the purely vegan space for a second, but to a great ally in the space, there's a guy named Seth Goldman, and Seth was the founder of a company called Honest Tea. Mm-hmm. And Honest Tea uh, is a natural tea company. He's now actually the chairman of the board of Beyond Meat which is a wonderful meat alternative company. And when Seth was at Honest Tea, he was known and he still has led, he has left some incredible uh, track record there. He was known for the extreme transparency the company has in regards to their social mission and how well they accomplish it. So each year they put out a scorecard where they show what social impact they intended to have and what effect they have had and also where they've come up short or not succeeded as much as they'd like to and how they're going to change that. A number of years ago, Seth Goldman sold Honest Tea to Coca-Cola. And when he did, many people were extremely critical of that. But in his book, Mission in a Bottle, he talks about how by doing that, he was not only able to ensure that a good company with good values and great products could expand more quickly and could replace more of the less good products. So, you know, less people were drinking products that had more sugar and were less likely to be organic and used worse plastic because he had the resources of Coca-Cola to sell it more widely. But also, as part of the negotiation, he required that he have an influence on some of the practices that Coca-Cola themselves have beyond his company. So he made them agree not to change certain practices about honest tea and force them to change certain practices about Coca-Cola. That kind of influence is unbelievable. And I'm expecting that we're going to see that across the board. Uh, in 2014, a company called Pinnacle, which owns Aunt Jemima and Birdseye and many other conventional brands, bought Gardein, uh, that meat alternative company I mentioned earlier. And I'm expecting to see some wonderful changes out of them. They've actually gone on to purchase some additional natural companies, including some with vegan products. And just last week, it was announced that, actually just this week, it was announced that Tyson Foods has invested in Beyond Meat. A lot of people were unhappy about that. I thought it was fantastic because it means that those companies are recognizing 
that they can make money off this. And it means that we have the opportunity to take the dollars they're spending on cruelty and put it towards compassion. Yeah, um, I'm really excited about what's happening there. And I think that's, well, you, you didn't want to use the word. I think that's infiltration in the most positive sense of the word that <laughs> that exists. And uh, yeah, Seth Goldman, I think he still goes by by Honest Seth on, on Twitter, if I remember correctly. And what, yes. what, what you just described right now, it, it fits him very well. But if we stay with the business and your clients and what and who they are, at what stage do you normally come in with your services for, for the companies that you serve? It's a great question. So we work with companies literally from day one, even before a product exists. We work with companies on product development, if they don't have a product yet, on concepting and ideation, on brand development, go-to-market strategy. And then once they're in market, or if they're already in market, we work with them to manage and execute flawless marketing and branding across all channels. We are very much a full-service agency, and we love working with companies from day one because so often we find that companies rush into market without having a clear sense of financial development over a long time and how they will afford things or how they should charge for things or who their competitors are or how to position, what to communicate into what audience. All these things are so important that we love being there involved very early on to help companies make sure that they are extremely efficient and effective when they're spending their dollars to, to sell and market their products. Yeah, so if we look at different stages of growth, what are the most important questions that uh, vegan plant-based business owners should be asking? Like if we go from idea and then development and testing down to getting the product to market and, and growth, what are the most important things that one should be focusing on and questioning? Sure. So I should emphasize that while there are some things that certainly cut across industries, our expertise is very much in the consumer packaged goods space. So our clients are food and beverage products, supplements, cosmetics, personal care products, cleaning products, things of that nature. We're not working very much in, in you know, we're not, we're not doing marketing or branding for service providers like we are other things of that nature. And so it's a little different in terms of what's needed in each of those industries, though there are some similarities. I think one of the first things to understand before going to market when somebody is just coming up with their concept is to understand what's already out there and what is needed and by whom. So why is a consumer, what is a pain point, right? What is it that a consumer needs or that another business, if you're selling business to business needs, that you can offer in a better, more efficient, more affordable way or that is not being offered at all yet? And why do people care about that? So we work with companies to establish two things. Who they are as a brand, meaning why are they what, you know, doing what they are doing? Why do they care? What does it mean to them? What they want to see in the world? Their vision, their mission, their values, their personality. And then simultaneously, we work with them to understand everything else around them, the context they're in. Who are their potential customers? And how focused can they get on that? We like to define the exact core customer and give them a name and an age 
define where they live and their occupation. Because when you're marketing, the more targeted you can make your marketing, the more effective it's going to be because it's going to speak to that audience. There will be a lot of people around that person that are influenced as well, but it helps you think as strategically as possible to not waste money on people who are not a good fit. One of the biggest red flags for me is when people tell me that everybody is their customer because everybody can love their product. That may be true that many people will like their product, but that doesn't mean that people are going to choose it. The fact is we have, as consumers, limited resources and limited time. We call it um, a limited shopping basket because we use the shopping basket analogy. So if I want to put a new product in the market, when a customer goes to the store, they can only carry so much in their hands, they only have so much time to look at new products, and they only have so much money to spend. So why is my product a solution that is important enough that it's going to displace something else that would have been in that shopping basket. So that's really what I ask people to think about. And then, how do you communicate that to that audience effectively? So we look at who they are, where they shop, or where they uh, live, or where they spend their time, online or offline, and how to message most effectively to them. Yeah, so this would be then getting the product to market and then growing it. And, um, yes. You know, in terms of specific problems that you help solve, what are some of the most common ones that you encounter in, in your work? Yeah, so we work with companies at many different stages. We have clients who are selling over 200 million American dollars a year in revenue. And we have clients who are at zero dollars in revenue and haven't even started their businesses yet. So it's it changes quite dramatically based on the stage of a business, but certainly for the first year or two, sometimes more, understanding exactly who their customers, all the things I just mentioned, and where they should market or sell, um, and how to differentiate themselves and make people care is a huge challenge. And one thing I'll mention is the reason that I focus on that so much is because we have a lot of what we call wounded warriors as clients. So many wonderful people with a great mission and maybe a fantastic product, but they worked with somebody, an agency or a consultant or something, who maybe spent a lot of their money developing all of these things to go to market. And then it doesn't work and they don't know why. And sometimes it's because they did not have those foundational elements established. That's very important to us. Um, other challenges that we find, you know, the thing about working with consumer products, particularly foods and beverages, especially if, they're, if they have a shelf life and they're not shelf stable, is that they are heavy, they are sometimes breakable, they are um, needing to be consumed and moved very quickly. And so the logistics of a consumer product company is very different than a service provision company. You know, you have to consider cold storage and logistics to get from one place to another, manufacturing on scale, how you can get ingredients in large enough quantities that you can get the good costs to make your product affordable, um, all these considerations are very important, and there are a lot more factors that aren't considered when in other businesses. So we are often dealing with people who have wonderful ideas, but for whom the catch-22 of not having enough business to start selling in large quantities means they can't order enough to make the cost cheap enough to sell a lot. That's a challenge a lot of companies run into. And so we can work with them to figure out 
how to spend efficiently and effectively and when to raise capital or when to get a loan or other things or when to buy more or less to optimize those needs. Right. So just in terms of specific solutions for someone who's listening and is facing a similar problem, what are some simple actions or precautions that they can take to to avoid it? Sure. So, so one thing is when you're developing your product, before you ever start producing it, start researching how much it will cost, not only when you buy a small amount of that um, for testing, but also what it will cost when you buy at volume breaks. So call a distributor or a supplier and say to them, okay, it you told me it'll cost $5 a pound if I buy one pound, but how much will it cost me if I buy 100 pounds or 1,000 pounds or anything like that? That way you're going to get a sense of what it will be like as you grow because that will tell you if it's going to be realistic or not. Another very important thing to find out is if there is a difference in pricing around different times of year. And not only pricing, but also quality and availability. If you're dealing with a product that is very seasonal, as is true for many um, produce products like fruits and vegetables that are grown only in one season, and you need fresh ones, is it possible to get them at that same price in the fall as it is in the winter or in the spring or in the summer? And will they taste as good? Or do you have to pay twice as much to ship them from across the world? That's extremely important to consider. I know many people who uh, work with ingredients that they don't realize are going to change so dramatically in price. A great example is nuts. Pecans can double in price from one season to another. And so planning that out and speaking to people in the industry about how you can plan accordingly to those fluctuations is very important. So planning out based on volume breaks and seasonality, I would think are two great recommendations around thinking about that. Um, and also, of course, always have multiple sources that you're comparing and negotiating with so you can always find alternatives. Yeah, see, that's, at least for me, definitely something that I don't think I would consider if I was just starting out now. And I'm pretty sure that for a lot of new business owners who just have great ideas, it's definitely pretty low on, on their list of things that they're going to be considering. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that. Sure. Um, but now let's say you used, we used the word vegan before we used flexitarians. Tell me what's more likely to sell in your experience. Is it vegan or plant-based? What's more likely to sell, you said? Yes. So I think there are, it really depends on the audience and perhaps on the product line and what you're serving. So. Certainly, the word vegan is probably more effective with people who identify as vegan. Um, with a broader audience, very often plant-based can be more effective uh, because to folks who are not vegan, I think that it is it has a broader connotation that is not as threatening. I know some people would argue that it's because people don't necessarily automatically assume that, that means exclusively vegan. And that I think it's true that some people don't think of it that way. When I say plant-based, I certainly mean without any animal products, um, but I understand that some people might not think of that. Uh, I think that the other thing about plant-based is that there is an inherent assumption about healthfulness because people think of plants as healthy and people think of plants as sustainable. And most studies show 
that people are more likely to go towards a plant-based diet for health or for sustainability than they are for animals. Even if we hear most from people like, like myself who did it for animals. So if we're going to be more likely to reach people that way, and we know that a word like plant-based is likely to reach them there, or flexitarian, or other words that don't seem extreme, why not use them? Um, so I, I tend to be a fan of those words. I do call myself vegan. I have no shame of that. I'm very proud of that. And I'm very open about it. It's something that I've committed my life to for good reason. Um, but when it comes to marketing products, you know, I, I like to, I like to test and validate. I like to do focus groups or other things to see what works in each circumstance. And there are times where I think plant-based may be less effective. I just spoke to an incredible, uh, vegan pastry chef who was telling me that she did a online baking class and that when they, they did a test and when they called the class plant-based, almost nobody signed up. And then when they called it vegan, they had a huge response. And her assumption, which I think may be accurate, was that people don't think of um, plants as something that's enjoyable in baking. They think of baking as being about sweets. So if you think plant-based equals vegetables, that doesn't t sound very delicious. On the other hand, when it comes to entree food, uh, food that we eat for our main courses, vegetables sound great and they sound healthy and sustainable. So that might be more effective. So it's not an all or nothing, you know, perfect answer that fits every circumstance. And I think testing it with consumers is the most important thing. But more often than not, I think plant-based has a really strong value in showing something as acceptable. But there are exceptions. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with the plant-based baking because just even to me, and I know what exactly is meant with that when you say plant-based baking, it, it just doesn't have that tasty, delicious ring to it. Definitely. Yeah. And, and the other thing that you said is that, um, yeah, ultimately, I think for most people, their reasons they're for, for making their choices, they're not completely altruistic. So yeah, health and environment in, in my experience that those tend to rank higher than, uh, than caring for animals at least for most I consumers. Say, I don't think those things are necessarily less altruistic. It could be just a different specific issue they care about. I mean, I know many people who are concerned about their health because they want to be there for their children or their grandchildren, or people who care about the environment because they care about the sustainability of our planet and about other species or about you know protecting natural environments. So I think those can be perfectly altruistic. Um, it's just a different set of values. and and. And it doesn't mean that anybody who is passionate about that isn't also passionate about preventing cruelty. Um, but in terms of messaging, we tend to be more effective when we speak about things that people naturally understand and relate to. And so far, the research I've shown shows that people are more motivated when you, you know, if you say, um, you know, eating a plant-based diet can prevent climate change, to most people, climate change is something that they understand in a more automatic way than farm animal feelings. Whether that's fair or not, it's the current circumstance. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you there. And um, do, do you think there are any other terms that are being used or just coming out? Like, for instance, the, the clean meat that's, that's just evolving right now. 
Are there any other terms that uh, you think have potential for the future? Yeah, I'm very interested in the cellular agriculture and synthetic biology spaces uh, that are producing what you call clean meat or also known as cultured meat. Um, I'm very interested in that space for the potential development of solutions to many, many different categories that, um, you know, we may find are easier to move people's diets if they feel they don't have to sacrifice a certain tasting experience. Uh, when it comes to language around those particular products, I still think there's a lot of research to be done, whether it's clean or cultured or something entirely new. Right now, I think there's still a lot more to be tested. What I do know is that when the words that are tested for that movement are tested, and I'm working on this as well, um, I'm actually working with an organization here in the United States which is developing a panel of consumers, a consumer research panel, where we can test words related to these movements and what's effective. And not just words, but ideas for products or prices or names or branding or anything. Um, we're developing that right now. Um, and if anybody's interested in learning more or helping to bring that to life, you can check out Faunalytics, F-A-U-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S. Uh, we are working with them to launch this panel. It'll be very exciting when it comes out. And um, But I think that the, one of the most important things is that we remember that these are food. And when people think about food, they want to think delicious. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done to determine how we can show, whether it's with plant-based foods or with cultured or synthetic biology foods or whatever we call them, when we think of the words that we are using, we need to make sure that it shows transparency and trust as it should, that it makes people feel that it's as delicious as it is, and that it gets people excited, not just that it um, scientifically accurately describes something. It should be honest and transparent, but also desirable and exciting. Speaking of exciting, you know, there there are some pretty cool things happening right now in the plant-based, in the vegan food space. And, you know, cultured meat is just one of them. And the best thing is what we're seeing right now is only the beginning. So what I wanted to ask you is of the companies that you work with and the new products and the technologies that are coming out, what are you personally most excited about? Sure. So... I have the gift of working with so many incredible people uh, and talented people with amazing products. Right at this moment, uh, I am very excited that we just this past week launched a company I've been working with for a long time. Uh, the company is called Ocean Hugger Foods, and the, the flagship product that we've just launched is called Tomato Sushi. And Tomato Sushi has been a concept that's been out for uh, as a concept for a couple years now. But we just launched it this week in stores in New York City, in restaurants in New York City, actually. And it's an unbelievable product made out of tomatoes and very clean ingredients with very little processing that tastes and has the texture of raw bluefin tuna. And uh, tomato sushi can be used in sushi, in Hawaiian poke salad, as a tuna tartare or ceviche. Anytime you have a raw tuna preparation... This product is an incredible replacement that's healthy, sustainable, delicious, and cruelty-free. And it was developed by a certified master chef, one of only uh, less than 70 in the world. And uh, that's Jamie Cor Jimmy Corwell. Uh, we've launched that in New York at Fresh & Co. So if anybody's in New York or comes to visit, please come to Fresh & Co. so you can try our delicious product. 
And we'll be rolling that product out to many other restaurants and other places around the U.S. and beyond over the coming year plus. So I'm extraordinarily excited about that. It's been something we've been working on for a long time, and people are loving it. And we've got an incredible media attention. We're just excited to get this in people's mouths because even beyond the overall cruelty to fish, which is an extremely important and often overlooked issue, even from a pure environmental standpoint, bluefin tuna are one of the most endangered species in the world. And eating tuna is extremely unsustainable. Chef Corwell spent five years working to create something that could provide that incredible culinary experience while protecting our very endangered oceans and fish animals uh, and fish uh, friends. And I'm so proud to be part of that business and to help bring something to market that can finally address that very important issue. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned tomato sushi because I, I have to admit that I'm really excited about it as well because it sounds like an awesome product and I love sushi. And even though you can make good, you know, sushi rolls, it's kind of hard to get good vegan sashimi for, for obvious reasons. So just related to the tomato sushi, you've probably had it a lot of times, right? Yes, I have. <laughs> How does it taste? Is it tastes it really fantastic. good. Yeah. It's very, very good. Absolutely. I've been fortunate enough to eat it a number of times uh, with Chef Corwell over the last year and a half as we've been working together. And now in the four dishes that uh, this Fresh & Co. chain has been preparing it in. Uh, and I love it. Absolutely. It is really something extraordinary to have that texture, that flavor in such a clean profile, extremely simple ingredients. And it really celebrates and, and elevates the cuisine that is already available out there. You know, I, I enjoy avocado rolls, but they do not make the kind of sushi meal that I want. I love sushi. I always have. I did long before I was vegan or vegetarian. And I want to be able to go out to a sushi restaurant and have that, in, that full experience that celebrates the tradition uh, of the Japanese culture, that celebrates the nuances of those flavors. Um, Chef Corwell has done something amazing. He brings out the fattiness and the uh, umami flavor and that perfect texture in a way that I've never experienced before. And with almost no processing, without any disrespect to any other alternatives out there, I'm very proud that this one is not an isolated, you know, extremely processed protein. It's a very clean ingredient with vegetable and seasoning. So I love it. Yeah, and it's only available in New York for, for now, if I understand correctly. We're going to wait for just a bit longer until it gets out to, to other places, right? That's right, but we don't expect it'll be too long. We're, we're very proud to be working with Fresh & Co. And they've been an extraordinary partner to us already. Uh, we are thrilled to be working with them, but... Uh, before long, we will be expanding beyond New York. We ask that people follow the company on Twitter at, at the tomato sushi or on Facebook at facebook.com slash tomato sushi. And you can stay tuned to find out when we'll be coming near you. Yeah. And we're having requests from all over the world. So we expect it to be in more countries very soon as well. Already done the following. And it actually, it sounds like a really cool story behind the product as well. So, I'm actually wondering if it might be possible to get the founder on the show in, in one of the following episodes and maybe just dedicate a whole hour to to finding out more about this product. It would be really I'd cool. I'd absolutely love that. I'm sure Jimmy would as well. He is one of the kindest uh, 
beyond being extremely talented, he's one of the kindest, most wonderful human beings. And we are so proud to work with him. And his experience, his culinary experience matched with his passion for making a difference. It's truly a, a spectacular thing. And I think his telling his story would be really, really powerful. Um, and we'd, we'd love to have him on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'll let him know. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks for that. Now, just to slowly start closing this off, you, you founded your company over four years ago. What was it like doing this in 2012 compared to 2016? How, how much easier do you think it's gotten to start a plant-based business? Yeah, I think that one of the things that's changed and it's something I've been very focused on um, has been the access to capital. Uh, when I started this business, there were people with wonderful ideas, but there weren't many opportunities to raise money to start these businesses. And today we're very proud that we work with and advise over a dozen venture capital firms, family offices, and other investment groups all over the world, throughout Europe and Asia and the United States, who are exclusively or specifically focused on investing in companies around this topic, around plant-based and cultured proteins and this nature. So that's an incredible change, um, and it makes it a lot more possible. There are also so many people who are recognizing that we can impact the world for animals with novel business ideas and with creative solutions like this. And so I'm not alone in this. There are others who are working on distribution and marketing and branding and sales and other things and investment and development and all kinds of things all over the world devoted to this topic. So it's changed quite a bit. Um, and as that happens, the number of amazing products that we can all eat also changes very dramatically. So each day I get to try and hear about amazing new products. And it's such a blessing to be working with people who are making new things every day. Yeah, I, I hear you completely on that. And I think, like I said, this is only the beginning that we're seeing. So where exactly do you see your role in the future of shaping this trend? Oh boy. So uh, <laughs> I love what I do and I'm thrilled and honored to have the clients we work with and to have worked with so many wonderful companies. Um, you know, we are very committed to being a full service solution to helping companies launch and grow globally. And in that way, we are working with companies who are totally plant-based and with companies who are looking to expand into the plant-based space. Uh, even if that is not their entire focus, we will work with them on that aspect of their business. And we are spending a lot more time now working actually than ever before. I don't mean that we're spending more time on it than anything else, but many of our clients now are global clients or international clients who are looking to enter the American market and want the help of a company that has the expertise of what is like to launch here. Uh, so we are thrilled to be working with companies in Israel and France um, and uh, in, um, Hong Kong and other places right now. And that's a lot of fun to be taking the ingenuity of people all over the world and helping them expand onto this global stage. Going forward, we've partnered now with investors, manufacturers, distributors, sales teams, retail outlets who are dedicated to this space. And we are, we see ourselves being a very uh, active participant in helping build this pipeline for companies to launch and grow, to be globally successful and to save millions and millions of lives, human and non. And for that, David, I, I thank you. And I'm pretty sure that 
my listeners thank you as well. So if someone wants to get in touch with you and find out more about your services or hire you, what's the best way to, to reach you? Sure. So the best way is to send me an email. My email is david at plantbasedsolutions.com. Our website is plantbasedsolutions.com. We're also on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn, and you're welcome to connect with me on either of those, any of those places. On Facebook, I prefer to connect on our professional page uh, more than our business, uh, more than my personal page, but you're welcome to reach out to us in any of those places. In addition, if you go to our website right now, I'm actually traveling quite a bit. So uh, tomorrow, which is Saturday, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yes, tomorrow, Saturday, October 15th, I will be in Boston to speak at a conference at Harvard. Uh, and then tomorrow night, I will be in Paris for a week. I leave for Paris for a week, uh, where I'd love to meet with anybody who would like to connect. I'll be attending the CL trade show. Uh, and then over the next month or so, I'll be in San Francisco and many other places traveling throughout the US and beyond to represent our company and our clients. If anybody would like to meet, I would be thrilled to connect with you in person or otherwise. That's David at plantbasedsolutions.com. Definitely worth reaching out. <laughs> Absolutely. You, so, David Benzakin, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. And it was really awesome to talk to you. I, I love what you're doing. Thank you so much, Jerry. I really appreciate you having me on and all the great work you're doing to educate people about this space and the opportunities to make such a huge difference with our careers. Yeah, well, thank you. And I wish you all the best with, with plan-based solutions. I'll definitely be staying in touch because I really want to see how, how this pans out for you. Wonderful. Likewise. Good. Take care. Bye-bye. And that brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Plan-Based Entrepreneur Show. I got to say, for me, the biggest takeaway from this one and what's really so obvious when you're working in this plan-based space is that collaboration is the new norm, not competition. And I hope as the products and brands become more mainstream, this style of doing business also becomes more mainstream in our economy because it makes us all profit in the end. Now, David also shared a lot of other amazing information here. So if there's anything that you didn't manage to catch, don't worry, because we take all the show notes for you and you can find them online at theplanbasedentrepreneur.com slash show slash episode 008. That's where you can also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss another episode. And to stay in touch with us, follow us on Twitter at pbentrepreneur. Or, of course, reach out to me directly by sending me an email on jerry at theplantbasedentrepreneur.com if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for upcoming episodes. I'll talk to you again next Wednesday. And until then, keep working together to create a plant-based future for everyone.